Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hattis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Dr. David Gonzalez is a research scientist at the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience, University of Melbourne, and could very well be a poster boy for careers in STEM. Dr. Gonzalez has always had a curious mind and been intrigued by science, beginning with the first time he looked out an old Zeiss microscope. However, it was a personal experience via a family member that really catalyzed and fueled his passion to pursue a career in science, and specifically his work in multiple sclerosis. Whether creating knowledge resulting in the better understanding of biological processes of the disease, identifying novel therapeutic targets, or developing practical applications, Dr. Gonzalez admits he finds it very easy to be motivated and passionate about what he does. Dr. David Gonzalez sat down with our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath, to talk about that passion for his work. I'm a research scientist and I work at the University of Melbourne, but I also do some teaching. I do a little bit of teaching in the medical course as a, as a tutor, as a CSL tutor, where we cover pretty much all of the subjects that undergraduate medical students... Um, What's CSL? Oh, it's called case-supported learning. So the students get all their lectures and then they don't have sort of lots of tutes like you would have in undergraduate courses, but you have this one big case and you work through all of your lectures and all of the, the, the biological uh, pathways and, and um, uh, I guess, understanding that underpins disease that they're trying to understand at the time. So that's one thing I do. I lecture in the third year of the undergraduate science and biomedical sub uh, courses which is the this is this is a topic that I'm really interested in which is uh, the refinement of connections in the brain so when you're developing uh, your brain is this growing mess it's almost like you could think of it as a, a chaotic you know forest that's just got as much stuff as possible to grow um, but everything collides in with each other and there's not enough space and eventually things have to sort of sort themselves out and it develops this nice kind of balance and equilibrium but any different forest I guess would be very different um, you might go to one in the outback and that will look really different to one in northern Cairns um, and how that equilibrium is reached is sort of what a developing brain is like and we lecture on the processes by which cells interact with each other and refine how they're connected to each other and how they um, might grow how quickly some cells might grow at one point and other points and what factors uh, change those things and what happens if those things go wrong. So my brain could be an Amazon forest and someone else's brain could be the Australian bush. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe parts of your brain could be the Amazon forest and other parts will be also a tropical rainforest, but different. So you might be the Amazon and I might be, I don't know, I'd hope to be Port Douglas or something like that, somewhere inland, of, just inland of Port Douglas. But yeah, something like that. So conditions can be similar, but when you go in and you're really looking at all of the connections between cells, strikingly different. Can be. It can be strikingly different. Is that because there are a gazillion, gazillion connections? Yeah, that's right. So there are lots and lots of different connections. There are also lots and lots of different types of cells. And we're learning more and more that... Uh, one type of cell, which we might have thought all was the same, 
when we drill down and start looking at them more closely, we're starting to realize that they're really different. So the cells that I study are the ones that make um, the insulating material that covers all of the wires in the brain. So just like the wires in your house, um, you, they're not bare because if they're bare, the electrical signal gets disrupted. Um, they're insulated. They're wrapped with this specialized, in a house, it's a, usually it's plastic or some sort of inert substance. In the brain, it's membranes. It's like uh, uh, the stuff that cells make that form their outer casing, and they wrap around the wires and keep them insulated. So that's to protect the electrical signal. But at the same time, those cells feed the cable because the cable's living. So I'm interested in those cells. And it was once thought that those cells are just sort of filling space, you know. Uh, and then we sort of worked out, no, we need them to make the electrical signal go really well. And then we thought sort of they're all one thing. They're all one type of cell. And then only a couple of years ago, um, it was figured out that there's a huge amount of heterogeneity, which means differences, amongst these cells. So it's kind of like saying, uh, I've got a football team, and every player in that football team is exactly the same. That's what we used to think. But now we know everyone in the football team is dramatically different. (laughs) And each player might have slightly different roles, because one might be able to jump really high, so they are the center. And another one might run real fast so they play a different position and that's sort of like what what uh, is going on with this particular lineage of cells called the oligodendrocytes so it's really the champion team not a team of champions that that's we right. need to play together yeah and uh, get that uh, nerve cell well fed and insulated dr david gonzalez tell me about the researcher in you like what are you famous for I, I guess I would be known for uh, studying. I'm really interested in how the rates of tissues grow. And I, during my PhD, um, uh, developed a method to study how, cell, how fast cells can divide in vivo. So that means in tissue. And I've applied that method to study how fast nerve cells in, in one part of the peripheral nervous system grow. But now I've turned to looking at the brain and looking at these non-nerve cells, these non-neuronal cells. Um, And what I'm really interested in is characterizing how fast they grow and how many cells are made per day, how many are lost, and whether or not if you, say, are put in an enriched condition or if you're stressed out, whether or not that impacts those rates of growth. Because we know that you have a sort of a limited window to generate these cells. And we want to really know what, one, how, how do they Become, how do you, how did you generate them? What are the mechanisms the cells are using? Are they dividing fast? Are they dividing slow? Are there lots of them dividing? Are there not many dividing? These are the sorts of things I'm interested in. And then secondarily, I'm starting to get really interested in whether or not those features of growth are impacted by your environment and your conditions, and also how you know how how, how has it changed? No doubt funding bodies and taxpayers will be asking you, why do we need to know this? Right. So, I mean, one of the topical issues at the moment is uh, we, we, we have all around the world young people that might be put in conditions, say, like on a camp somewhere uh, where, where we wouldn't ideally want to house a young person that you or I might know. Uh, and we really don't know how lasting the effects of something like that are on the brain. We know it's bad. So putting someone in isolation, putting someone, taking someone out of an environment that's social, basically incarcerating somebody. So loneliness holding, or prisoners. Loneliness or prisoners or even just 
knowingfully being in detention or something like that. We we don't really know what those sort of negative social uh, environments, how that may impact the brain. But what we do know is that the process of myelination is permanent. So that's recent. So we've recently found out that once you lay the insulation down on the cable, that's it. It's there for good. So it's not at this stage, there's very little evidence that it's remodeled. Like the connections between your brain, they, they, they can be remodeled. I mean, there's a period where they can be remodeled quite a bit. And as you get older, it's harder to remodel. But that's with, plasticity. That's plasticity, it? right? Yep, yep. That's neural plasticity. Got this it. is another form of neuroplasticity. But all the evidence we have at the moment is once a myelinating cell wraps around an axon, it's there for your lifetime. So the insulation is there at the beginning. And it's there forever. Well, once it's laid down, it's being you're, you're being insulated. What we now know is that uh, in any in a, in, a, in a mammal, you're being insulated throughout life. But the rate at which it's being insulated, we're not very very we haven't fully characterised. But what we do know is you're adaptable early, and what you get early, you're left with later. So we're really interested in knowing how that process works and whether or not putting some someone in an isolated condition might alter that and whether or not that then is then permanently altered. So if I'm living by myself for too long, that's going to alter my brain? Well, it will alter your brain. I mean, it may not be bad. It may be really good. <laughs> but any situation that you're put in, any interaction you're having with the environment and any interaction you have with other people and anybody will have an impact on your brain. If you think about your brain, your brain is constantly changing its structure all the time. <laughs> so, you know, it's not a static thing. You can't, you know, if I was to say to, you know, a, a person in the street, if you're thinking about a brain, you can't think about this like bit of porridge that's between your ears that doesn't change. Inside of that is this intricate network that's constantly modifying. Now, some things can be modified more than others. And why I'm really interested in the insulating material called myelin is that we think that that once it's laid down, has less of an ability to be removed and replaced later. Is that a problem? It could be a problem if it contributes to, say, a negative type of circuit, whatever we might define as negative, earlier on in life. It may be then more difficult to adapt that circuit because we may not be able to make as much new myelin and we may not be able to get rid of the stuff that's already been integrated into circuits. So what disease states are related to your research so, or interested in your research? Yeah, so, so um, well, pretty much every neuropsychological disorder that we, we've, we've characterized has some kind of white matter pathology. Or not, I wouldn't say pathology, maybe differences. We see differences on scans where we try to look at this stuff and, and we identify changes in white matter. Um, but the real big disease that people... It's well known by the general public is the disease called multiple sclerosis. But that's kind of different to development. Um, multiple sclerosis is where, as an adult, um, for some reason your immune system just decides to start attacking this myelin. Now, this stresses how important this substance is because when the immune system attacks it, basically the, connect, the information that goes between neurons gets stopped because the insulation around the cable goes away. But then, unlike a house, the brain's cables need to be fed. So the, 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 metabol the metabolic support to the cable is then lost, and you get what we call a conduction block. So the electrical activity can't get from A to B, 
And when electrical activity in the brain can't get from A to B, that can be devastating. A perfect example is if your brain is trying to move your legs and the information can't get from your brain to your legs, it means your legs don't move. And that's why sometimes people who have, well, often people who have multiple sclerosis end up in a wheelchair. So it's not just your grey matter that's important, your nerves. It's your white matter, your myelin, your insulation. Oh, yeah, it's super important. You can't, your brain, it's integral to brain function. You can't take the white matter away from your brain. You can't take the myelin away from your brain and have a functioning brain. All right. Let's go back to early David. How did you get inspired to enter this whole field of science? Was it luck? Was it inspiration? What turned your attention to the brain? Initially, when I finished school, I kind of had very, very little idea about where I would end up in terms of a long-term career. I knew I was interested in science because it sort of interested me. I did well in maths. <laughs> um, so I, I did a science degree. And the first go at my science degree wasn't um, the best go. Uh, I ended up le- leaving uni for a little while and I went and worked in all sorts of different jobs. Uh, and then... Um, like I, what? Oh, I've done... <laughs> Uh, I've done everything from being in a call centre to... I actually was a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman <laughs> at one point. Didn't last very long. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd try it out, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that sort of thing was for me, really. Um, uh, I Yeah, I worked in bars. I, I, I worked as a, as a DJ uh, casually. Uh, so I've done a whole bunch of stuff. So what was the um, turning point for you? Well, I ended up moving in with, I have an uncle who, um, he he's a surgeon, or he was, he's still qualified as a surgeon, doesn't practice, but he had a car accident and was, um, after the car accident, was quadriplegic. And, and I ended up um, moving in with him and it was more he was doing me a favour than I was doing him a favour. He lived closer to the city and I was thinking about going back to uni. So, so it sort of worked out that I could sort of be a bit of a carer and then live with him and, and, and go, you know, get back into to study because I was sort of getting over doing sort of uh, different types of work. And, and um, when his accident sort of happened and when he was coming out of rehab- rehabilitation, we sort of were just spending a lot of time together and, and chatting a lot about the brain and how, you know, the brain... It was fascinated me that the brain just has very little capacity for, for repair in that condition. And it was also very sort of interesting to me in terms of how much impact, you know, a very small... You know, if you're thinking about a, a, an injury, it's relatively to, total body size. It's a very small injury, but it can have such a such a such a dramatic impact on on function on, on human function on your whole body function. And then because he's a he was a, he's a general well he was a general surgeon, so he had a bit of scientific background. We got sort of interested in talking about how the brain works, and then I got really interested in the brain. And I uh, sort of major when I got back into uni, I, I majored in 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 neuroscience, and um, and and it sort of went from there. Yeah. And you took it further. You did a PhD. Yeah. You're now a researcher and a lecturer. Tell me, what have you seen that's changed in the field of neuroscience? Have you already seen some changes? Is it moving fast? Oh, so even just the field of myelin biology, five, ten years ago, we had no idea it played any role in neuroplasticity. None. (laughs) So we had ideas. We had pieces of information that the activity in nerve cells 
can change the behavior of these myelinating cells. But we didn't know that if you block that behavior by myelinating cells, you can stop certain types of learning. So, so you know, that's a completely opened up field that we just, you know, we didn't know about. And I, don't, I doubt that most people walking around understand that a major component of neuroplasticity uh, lies in these cells being able to adapt to the changing um, behavior of neurons and other other cells. So that's one thing that's been um, quite quite a huge uh, change, I think. I mean, when I was learning my when I was doing my undergraduate studies, um, which was not that long ago, uh, we were not taught any of that. It was not in our course, and now it's great. I'm working on this stuff, so in our third-year lectures, I don't actually use anything in a textbook anymore. Um, we go to uh, all of, you know, we go to conferences and get all the publishing work and get all this new information. And what we do is we give the students sort of a, a, a bit of a, a status quo on what, what we know, but then we also give them a taste of all of this new stuff that you can't get in a book because the book was published six years ago, and by that time, the com- just, just the, the field has changed. So, you know, in some ways, that's really that's a really privileged position to be in to be able to uh, communicate that information to people and see that sort of whoa. That's you know, you see it on people's faces when you tell them, you know, if you stop if you block new myelin being added, then certain motor learning can't be done. You know, that that changes people's thinking. Yeah. Tell me about some surprises you've encountered that's absolutely delighted you in your area or knocked you for a sixer. Oh, okay. So one of the things recently, we've um, we just submitted a paper on it, actually. Um, one of the things that uh, has sort of revolutionized our field is um, the ability to look at the system. So uh, science, as long as we've gone back in terms of biology and neuroscience, a lot has depended on how much we can actually see. So In order for us to study the brain, we need to be able to see what's happening in the brain, look at connections. Myelin is something that's really hard to actually see. In the past, the only way to really look at the structure of myelin was to go to an electron microscope. Um, But sort of a few years ago, a lab in, in, um, in Yale, they published this method that myelin itself, the structure of it, because it's wrapped around so tight, it's like if you imagine you've got a bit of glad wrap, uh, actually, glad wrap on a roll. <laughs> if you got a bit of glad wrap and wrapped it, 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 wrapped it around a bit uh, like a mushy tube of jelly or something, the glad wrap becomes hard. But the other thing that happens with this particular glad wrap that's in the brain is it becomes optically reflective. So it's like a mirror. It's weird. So if you so, shine a light on it, it kind of bounces back. Yeah, light bounces off this particular stuff. So. This group published a paper saying that, well, if you shine laser light on brain tissue and you have uh, the equipment to capture the reflection of that light, you can actually see this stuff, this myelin. So I thought that was fantastic. And we got the paper, we had a look at it, and we worked out that the uni had just bought these really nice microscopes um, and they had the capacity to do this. So we sort of, well, we one day I went in the lab and just sort of set it all up and took some sections in to look at it and thought this is not going to work <laughs> and and shone this laser light down at, at, at the tissue and then lo and behold coming back was this beautiful picture of where all of the myelin was in the in the sample and and we didn't have to do anything to the sample didn't have to process it didn't have to put any labels on it nothing it's just literally <laughs> 
the reflection of, of, of the tissue. And the only thing in brain tissue that has this reflective property is myelin. So um, we've now been able to use this particular technique to start studying debris in the context of multiple sclerosis. Well, we know when the immune system comes in and attacks the myelin, it breaks up and it forms these clumps that are reflective. And we weren't able to, we know these clumps are not good for repair, but we weren't able to quantify them. We weren't able to see them. So using this technique, we can now actually see these clumps and we can also see them inside the cells that are eating them. So we can monitor how fast they're getting cleared. And um, these are all things that we weren't able to do in the past. And, and now we can do them so we can look at whether or not a new drug improves the process of clearing the debris or, or, or something like that. Um, so that's really, really exciting. That was a really, I mean, I almost fell off my chair. We, we, you normally with science, when you try an experiment, it's likely it's not going to work the first time around. But uh, this was one of those situations where yeah, it just came, came good. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I have to ask, whose brains do you look at? Are they animal brains? Are they human donations? Uh, at the moment, I'm looking at everything from mouse to um, human brain. So this reflective te- technology, um, it, the, the reflective property of myelin doesn't change if you're a mouse or you're a man or you're a, mm. a zebrafish or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, it's the re- if it's compacted and wrapped around tight, it, it reflects light. So we do. One of the projects I'm interested in at the moment is we don't actually know how myelin changes in aging, but we do have um, quite a good collection of people who have donated their their bodies to science for the purpose of studying, um, teaching either anatomy to medical students or, or or doing research. And we're able to now use this technique to study how myelin is integrated into the cortex during human aging. And that's really exciting because at the moment, we're not sure whether or not this stuff is added right through to being very old. We know in a mouse, myelin is added into the cortex until the mouse is the equivalent of an 80 or 90-year-old human. Now, the other day, I had a look at a 92-year-old bit of brain. Um, I know that might sound strange, but there's quite a lot of cortical myelin. And I was quite surprised by that. So we're really excited by this project because we can track the trajectory of of myelination and whether or not that's good for preventing against certain types of age-related decline, we're, we're not sure. But, yeah. When you chat with the public and they find out you're a neuroscientist and work with the brain, do you find that some people have misconceptions about the brain or even your students when they come to class? What are some of the common misconceptions they have? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things about neuroscience is that the public, um, people are usually not comfortable with the fact that maybe what we know today isn't what's going to be what we know now or tomorrow. So, you know, some of the stuff that I was taught during my my undergraduate is no longer sort of legitimate. And one of the things that we notice a lot is that I notice a lot is that that for some reason is difficult for people to come to terms with when it comes to the brain. Don't know why, you know, (laughs) why the brain is something any, any different. Like, uh, for a long time, people thought that there was no immune cell service, you know, surveying the brain. And now we know that that's just not true. Immune cells go in, they look at the brain, they do it like they do with other tissues in the body, and then they leave. And there's a pathway for them to get in and get out, and and we know all of this, but, you know, 
sometimes people will say, you know, that's a privileged site. It's complete. And it is privileged. It is different. Immune cells can't go into the brain as the same way that they can go into, I don't know, a bit of muscle or, or liver or something. But they can get there. <laughs> and there's things like that are, are, are really odd. And, and we find that even in, like, my, even when I talk to my uncle, he's a clinician. And and then they're one of the group of people that find it the most difficult because they need to know that what they know is spot on. And it's difficult when you have to be confronted by the fact that this tissue, this bit of thing, we don't really get. That means when we find new information, it could change our existing position. And I find that that's one of the things that you know, people find difficult coming to terms with, yeah. Well, give us a good take-home message. Next time we see a picture of a friend's MRI or a cartoon of a brain, what would you like us to think about? Yeah, I'd like, I, I think I'd like people to think, well, I've got little kids and I think uh, maybe to overlay two things. One, it's not a static thing. Two, I don't think it's a lot like you know, the way we analogize a brain to a computer. Uh, A brain is not a yes and no operating machine. The way a neuron fires is a yes and a no. But to get to that point, it's a mess of an analog signal that's sitting beneath it. Uh, And the other thing is, is that it's super dynamic. Things are changing all the time. And the uniqueness in each brain is that structural difference and that Structural difference then means that there's differences in the way things move around, things connect, things are talking to each other. So when you're looking at an MRI of someone's brain and you look at an MRI of someone else's brain, it can look really similar. But to me, what I would hope someone thinks is that those things are extremely different. (laughs) Behind that MRI is two completely different things. The second thing is behind the MRI of a little person (laughs) and an old person is also a completely different thing. Even though all the structures might look the same, you've got the same gross bits within those structures, I think it's almost like a universe of difference. <laughs> so not just a wee bit of difference, a massive difference. So I think if people can can think that this is a structure that's just constantly moving and changing and adapting to what's going on around you, um, and also that that constant ebb and flow is completely different in you to me and that's what makes us you know who we are i think that would be absolutely fantastic yeah dr david gonzalves thank you cheers thanks thank you to dr david gonzalves research scientist at the department of anatomy and neuroscience university of melbourne and thanks to our reporter dr andy horvath now andy and david aren't done they have something more to tell you but you've also appeared on one of our sister podcasts. It's called Secret Life of STEM, Surprising Stories Behind STEM Careers. It's a new podcast made by the University of Melbourne, and it explores the sort of fears and hopes and misconceptions about studying and working in STEM. You can relate to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess I didn't take a traditional path. uh, And I actually know quite a lot of scientists that didn't maybe take the traditional path. So I actually was kicked out of the uni. So I got in, got out, and then got back in again somehow. So it's a completely atypical way to get to where I am now. But I think if you're interested in those sorts of background stories, then go for it. I think it's good to get the whole range of stories. And so if you're in high school or a secondary school student, 
anywhere around the world, this podcast is for you. It's The Secret Life of STEM. Chris Hatzis will give you all the details. Thank you, Andy. Yes, The Secret Life of STEM. It's a new podcast from the University of Melbourne and is available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Do check it out. The Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on June 19, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.